Welcome to Common Sense Leadership Podcast with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Common Sense Leadership is an influencer podcast that will make you think, laugh, and act. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe and tell a friend to also listen and subscribe. Now, let's join our host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday. I am super stoked to come to you. And can you believe that we're already in August? It's already August. Eight months of this year have already gone by and we only have four remaining. I am excited about the topic that we're going to be talking about for the month of August and September. And that is the value of service. The value of service. Now, let me uh, preface what I'm about to say by saying this, when I talk about, and when my guests talk about service, they're not talking about giving away your talent. They're not talking about uh, charitable work. And although that's part of service, that's a part of service. It is not all that we're going to talk about. And we're getting today with my special guest and a good friend, a, my brother from another mother, uh, the new director of the department of Homeland Security's Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, my good friend, uh, Marcus Coleman. He is a phenomenal thought leader and is doing so much in the area of service, but also so much in the area of really helping others to prepare for how do we serve and how do we serve well? And what does service really mean to you? Marcus is kicking us off uh, today with this theme, the value of service. And later in the month, I'm bringing back another dear friend, Dr. Lena Matezzi, and she will continue to talk about uh, the value of service. Okay, so LD, why did you choose that particular topic? Why is that so important? I want you to know that I am where I am today because of service, because of my commitment to others. And because of that, I have been able to reap the benefits of that service. I've, I've worked in public service. I've worked with nonprofits. But most of all, I have felt uh, this passion uh, to give more and to give back. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next four podcasts. We're going to talk about the value of service. Now, why is that so important at this point in, in time? And why is it so important at this point in the year? It's important because we are eight months in. We have four months remaining. This is an opportunity for many of us to kind of recalibrate. Are we doing everything that we need to do? Are we giving back in a way that we can? And sometimes I, when, I have, when I have these conversations with people about giving back, uh, people want to say, hey, you know what? I work in corporate America. I'm not giving back. I'm working my job. I'm doing my thing. You can give back regardless of where you are, what industry you are a part of. Listen to our guest, uh, Marcus Coleman, kicks us off. And what Marcus talks about is a lot of really what makes him the phenomenal leader that he is. He talks about various elements of giving back and, and how his family really contributed to his passion for giving back. You'll hear his leadership journey and his story. And I tell you, you will be as intrigued and invigorated 
by his story and by his comments around the value of service. And he'll talk particularly about public service and, and why he went into that, that area of work. Like I said, when you, when you hear him, you will see what I'm talking about. This guy is a phenomenal thought leader. And there are some thought leaders that, you know, you see on television, you read about them, but he is one of those quiet leaders that is constantly and consistently making a difference wherever he goes. And so I want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, my conversation with my good friend, Marcus Coleman. He'll share some things with you about his innovation and his creativity around service. And I think that's important. We figure out a way that we make service and the value of service, make it a part of who we are. I want to thank you for, for joining us, and I want to thank you for continuing uh, to follow us each and every other week. I want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Continue to do that and tell others to subscribe. As you're looking at us and as you're telling others about it, please share our podcast and share the links with others. Thank you so much. I want you to enjoy the rest of your Friday, and we'll see you next time. Hi, everybody, and happy Friday. I am so excited. My guest is a really good friend. We were chatting before we got on, and I just love this guy. Uh, Marcus Coleman is a great friend of mine. And you know, when we talk about uh, public service, and you know, this month's theme is a call to public service, a leadership journey. And one of the things that really struck me about Marcus when I first met him, I have a little story to tell you about him too, wink, wink. Uh, but I believe in public service, and you guys know how, how passionate I am about it. One of the things that I will emphasize that Marcus really and truly epitomizes about public service is a passion for public service. You know, sometimes people go into public service or they go into government service or government work because they're, you know, they can't find a job anywhere else. Well, it's a difference, a totally different story when you are passionate about the work that you do. And I must say that Marcus Coleman is passionate about the work that he does. And so Marcus, welcome. Thank you very much, LD. Glad to be on with you. Um, and yeah, thank you for the very kind introduction. Yeah, well, super. I'm gonna jump in, but I'm gonna tell you a story about Marcus first, all right? And then I'm gonna ask Marcus to uh, share his leadership journey. He's been in public service, I guess, most of his career. And I want him to talk to you about that journey and then talk to you about his leadership journey, how how he's made things work. And he is highly successful. Now, let me just say up front, he's very modest and he's not gonna tell you all the great stuff that he's done, all the awards and all the accolades, but I'll just tell you that on the sneak tip. So here's my story about Marcus Coleman. Uh, so I, I was in uh, DC at DHS, Department of Homeland Security, for uh, preparedness training, emergency preparedness training. And I was there to get certified along with some other folks. And I was there with a friend of mine. And Jana Scott was there and a couple of other friends. And so we're in the back of the room. Now, you know we were. Okay, we're those people. We're sitting in the back of the room. We were paying attention, but you know, as we're like exchanging information and kind of giggling, then I hear this voice, extremely articulate, very strategic in the comments he was making. And I did one of those, whoa, 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 whoa. who is that? I mean, so who is that talking? And so a friend of mine said, oh, no, no, there's his brother, Marcus Coleman. Dude is super smart. And after the, I, I stood up to see him because he was seated. 
I stood up to see him and Marcus is one of those strategic thinkers that I really enjoy talking to. So I'm going to let him tell his story. So I had to tell you that story about him uh, because that's how that was my first introduction to Marcus Coleman. So Marcus, if you would please tell us uh, about your uh, journey in public service and that leadership piece and, and just tell us what you're doing right now. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. And, and, and I appreciate you. And, and I'll say my leadership journey. So it starts and it's rooted in the continuing legacy of my great grandmother, uh, Dr. Della Whitehead, uh, my grandmother, Tommy W. Thomas, and my mother, Mayola Coleman, all three in very different ways were, were big contributors in public, different types of public service, uh, from helping to establish churches to starting different programs to help people find jobs. Uh, my mother continued that legacy as well. Um, coming from Tucson, Arizona in a single parent home, I'll say everything that I am today as a leader and as a public servant is very much rooted in being aware of my history and the work that they've done. Um, and an entire village of people. I'm wearing a shirt today that says not self-made village raised. And it's very much reflective of my leadership journey. Um, and it goes through several people, many of them teachers um, from Miss Denson, one of my uh, first teachers in orchestra who really taught me the importance of bringing people of different skill sets together to find that unique harmony in orchestra, right? You're talking about music in a certain way. Uh, other teachers were uh, my English teacher, Curtis Acosta, who was the one that really instilled in me the power of being able to use words um, to convince, to influence, and to connect with people. And then I have a whole litany of folks that are tied to my experience as a Howard University bison. I'm a proud bison. Um, HU, you know. So uh, that goes from the, the man who introduced me to Howard, Dr. Melvin Dixon. Um, he and his family were big leaders in our community. He owns his own dentistry practice, so on and so forth. From a public service perspective, a lot of it runs through Jana Scott, who you mentioned. Uh, she was the first leader that I met that I had come to know as a sponsor, um, right? I know we talk a lot about, there's a lot of conversation now about not just having mentors, but having sponsors, people that speak for you uh, in rooms that you aren't in. Um, and so she was a big part of that. And I think about Mike Letcher as well, one of the first African-Americans uh, city managers for the city of Tucson. Um, and so my leadership journey has kind of been there. And, and what that's meant for me is I've typically always had at the nexus of faith-based organizations and community-based organizations working with government to solve problems. Uh, mentioned a little bit about summer youth employment programs, helping to bridge the digital divide uh, back from when it was pure desktops to a little bit of what's happening today. Um, and just finding different ways to, to engage with government uh, growing up at the local and county level. Um, including leading a summer youth employment program uh, in partnership with the Urban League, a church, and the county uh, that I'm from, um, here to now a national level. Uh, currently, I'm in the private sector, which we can talk a little bit more about. But to your point, I spent a number of years, uh, 10 years in D.C., uh, working at the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and at FEMA's Individual and Community Preparedness Division. And when we had met and connected, it was kind of in that context of, how do we help build strategic partnerships to help people before, during, and after disasters? Taking at the time, right, a lot of us had Hurricane Katrina on our mind, and we didn't want to have that happen again. Um, so I've been kind of building from there and have had a, an interesting journey since then that I'm happy to talk about. You know what? That was fascinating. And I want you to talk even more about 
uh, just that, that connection, because you are strongly rooted in that faith-based area and also strongly rooted in public service. And I was so happy to hear you talk about uh, the educational component, because in education is critical. And sometimes when we think about public service, people don't really think about education and education is a part of that. So would you talk more about just your, your upbringing? I know you talked about those strong black women in your life and, and making you into the man that you are today. So, so share a little bit more about uh, just your beginnings and then talk more about, you know, what you did at FEMA. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of spill the beans on you because let me tell you uh, folks, when, uh, when faith-based organizations, and I was a part of one a delegation that came uh, to D.C. to talk about how can faith-based organizations be more engaged, Marcus was at the nexus of that. He was right at the forefront. He and Jana Scott really positioned organizations, regardless of their religious affiliation, positioned those organizations and those groups to be more vocal, to, to ask for what they needed and then to, to put it all together with local partners. So Marcus, I'm not gonna steal your thunder. No. So if you would talk a little bit more about, <laughs> about mom and grandmom, and then talk about the educational piece, just a little bit more, because Marcus is very, very humble, guys. And I, I said this initially, he gave a little shout out to HU, but I want him to talk more about that because that I think was a springboard in the so many of the things that, that have really brought him to where he is today. So Marcus, if you would, please. No, absolutely. So, so as I mentioned, growing up single parent household, the thing that my mom actually did uh, with the Urban League was build different types of employment programs. So that was kind of my introduction. I was inducted too, right? My first worked at 14. The job that I got at 14 was a result of government dollars being given to community-based organizations that wanted to help children. At the time, I was learning how to build computers. So that was kind of the big thing. Um, and really took an interest when I was at school as a business management major for really trying to find different ways to harness what I knew anecdotally was true. Faith communities do a lot of different things at the local level. It's not just opening the doors to the church, mosque or synagogue and doing worship Friday through Sunday. They're feeding people, they're providing adult education, uh, they, they're helping seniors and families that have a lot of issues. And I, I didn't know it at the time, I would learn at the federal level. It's a pretty substantial socioeconomic contribution when we're talking about the contribution of the faith community, on average per year, there's some studies that have it valued at 2.4, or excuse me, $1.4 trillion. And so there, when we're talking about faith contributions, it's not just church, mosques, and synagogues, it's faith-based hospitals. I know that some of the religious organizations that you're affiliated with, right, the denomination, yes, there are a lot of churches. I believe it's the largest or second to the largest African-American denomination but it's not just churches, it's businesses, it's radio programs, it's ways that, that people can be employed. And so a lot of my effort as we thought about what employment, what education, what empowerment looked like in the context of helping people before, during and after disasters, um, it was really important for us to be able to do three things in my, my uh, role at FEMA. Number one was make sure that we were empathetic listeners, right? And being very active to the needs and interests of LD, not just you and the organizations that you represented, but as you mentioned, all multi-faith organizations. People wanted to know, how do I connect with government? What does it mean to build a good partnership? If I don't get selected for a grant or if I'm not able to get a contract, what else can we do? Um, so making sure that we can provide some clear pathways there. I think the other second piece was to engage. So I know that you were one of the trusted advisors from a faith and community perspective on 
Are we crafting this message right? Are there things that we're missing um, in terms of our response post-disaster where we need to get to communities that have been traditionally ignored? Um, and then the third piece is making sure that we served is that strategic convening space. So it's kind of where you and I met, right? So when, when government opens its doors and affords opportunities to make some authentic connection with faith and community leaders, some great things can happen because government's limited in its capacity for what it can do. Um, and faith-based and community-based organizations have a lot of good intentions, goodwill, and a ton of resources, but yet and still, a lot of, a lot of efforts are bootstrapped. And a lot of the early work that happens, you know, for, for a lot of people, and particularly people of color and Black people, you have a lot of efforts that get a lot of energy to get off the ground, but it's hard for them to find funding. It's hard for them to get support. It's hard for them to get that institutional and structural support that we see so many other organizations get. And so I really took on a role of, in addition to providing general information about programs, helping to be that capacity builder on the federal government side for people of all faiths and, and all backgrounds um, as well uh, that wanted to do good by people. So that's a that's a little bit more about that work. Yeah, and 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 I, I do appreciate everything that you have done and also the things that you're currently doing. So take a, a just a quick minute, if you would, Marcus, and talk a little bit more about, I know a subject you're very passionate about, and that's preparedness. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that, that sometimes uh, in our communities, uh, communities of color, we tend to wait until there's an emergency to prepare for the emergency. Oh my God, a storm's <laughs> coming. We probably need an umbrella, you know? <laughs> And yeah. so, and so I, I, I loved uh, some of the training and also loved just the, the messaging uh, that you and your team, Janet's team, was able to really put together. So can you talk just a little bit more about preparedness, why preparedness is so important and the kinds of things that, that organizations can do? And the reason I say that is because what we're talking about and what we're seeing right now with climate change mm -hmm. is we're seeing this, this massive heat wave, uh, they call it the dome that's happening and all this, the heat related deaths and things of that nature. Now all the, you know, we've got hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that, that are coming. So talk to us a little bit more about preparedness. What can mm -hmm. folks do? And, and a little bit more about that for us, please. Absolutely. And I, and I'm glad that you mentioned that LD. So it actually ties very nicely into some of the things that I'm working on today. And, and you spoke to some of it, right? At any given moment today, you have people dealing with the heat wave, you have people still, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. The pandemic is not over. If anything, there's even more of an issue in terms of will this Delta variant be, be able to spread? And yet we're in hurricane season. It's wildfire season. It's always earthquake season. And what we know to be true, there's actually some recent investigative reporting from NPR about this. Black people, people of color disproportionately are getting access to recovery dollars for a lot of reasons. Some of them can be structural. Um, what I have learned from my experience at FEMA is rarely is it intentional in the way that people think. But at the end of the day, when you have certain reporting requirements, when you think about preparedness in our, in our family, in, in the context of Black Americans and Black communities and people of color, preparedness can look like making sure that if you inherited the house from your grandmother or grandfather, that the title and deed have been transitioned in your name, because if you lose that home in a disaster, what the government's going to ask for, not because they're against you, but they just want to make sure that they're good stewards of taxpayer dollars, can you prove that you own that property? So when we talk about preparedness, a little bit of it is, is bringing in some of the financial literacy education um, and some of the efforts that, that have been supported by faith communities, but then also thinking about 
if there's extreme heat, if there's a hurricane, if I need to go shelter in place at, at a friend's house for a while. Uh, my wife and I, we had a tornado warning uh, here yesterday and immediately we checked our, our, our Twitter feed. I follow all of my local news channels and, and government services, went down to the basement, took our important documents down there and hunkered down for about 30 minutes. Thankfully, nothing happened to our home, but you had a lot of homes that were damaged. Um, and unfortunately, some of those homes are uninsured. So when we talk about preparedness, we're talking about it at three levels. At the personal level, knowing what to do when a hazard happens. So knowing if you need to evacuate, you have a good sense of where to go and an alternative plan. Um, knowing what you need, the type of information you need access to, so trusted information. I think in this recent in these recent disasters is becoming increased importance um, and knowing what the proper guidance is. And then again, if we're talking about the economic impacts of it, right? Do I have the right insurance policies in place? Have I thought about what happens if I need to replace all of my credit cards? Do I remember my passwords in a way that's safe, right? That, I mean, I feel like we have to learn eight new passwords every three or four months because we're always doing these systems. So if all of the normal things that I like to do day to day get disrupted, how long is it going to take for me to recover that information and get back assets, access to the assets uh, that help me thrive and, and, or, or survive at a particular time? So uh, those are some steps that, that we take. You know what? I, I love it because uh, something I learned in the training, I was paying attention, guys, when I was in that training and I was cutting up in the back of the room. Um, one of the things that I learned and I share this with others is something that you guys said is uh, take a photocopy, make a photocopy of your uh, important documents in your phone, have it in your phone, because we always have our phones with us in the, in case of an emergency, I have my passport pictures of my passport. I have my driver's license. I have my insurance and all those things, those critical papers, because to the point that you guys made in the one that you just made, uh, Marcus is that sometimes when an emergency or a hazard happens, we're, we're kind of panicking and we don't really understand what needs to, to happen. We're just in the middle, in the midst of like, I need to do this right now. The other thing that you guys shared with us that I, I do, uh, is that you need to keep some cash on hand because when the power's out, ATMs are not working. And mm -hmm. you know, it seems obvious, but I hadn't even thought of it. I was like, Oh, I need to get some money in my crib. Okay. So, right. so, so those are some of the things that, that I learned from you guys and you continue to, to do that. Let's talk more about what you're doing. I know you're in private industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, you were, you were in government. He still has that thing guys. He loves government. Yeah. Uh, Friends and he's said. doing phenomenal work where he is. So tell us what you're doing right now and, and how that kind of ties in with the public service work that you have done. No, absolutely. So I, I work now, I'm on the government contracting side. So a lot of what I do is government contracting in terms of industry. Um, I still find myself in the business of helping connect people to different resources and essentially growing, growing influence in a manner that changes the world for good. So a big part of the mission, even as a government contractor, is helping to support clients. Uh, for example, I talked a lot about insurance. So one of our clients actually was was promoting uh, flood insurance and different hazard type insurance for people to take and thinking through solutions to provide uh, lower cost policies to people that may have act barriers to access or entry there. Um, that's it, I also lead a lot of teams. So as a government contractor, I know that a lot of what you, you talk about on your podcast is leadership broadly. So I've had the honor and pleasure to lead some pretty phenomenal people um, that have way smarter than I am technical experts, people that are project managers, 
and how we help support our clients to do things from building strategic communication plans uh, to developing talking points. Um, I still very much am involved as a community leader as well in a few different organizations and efforts that are tied back to that preparedness thing. Um, one of them, when we talk about safety and security for houses of worship and just that broader notion of how do faith-based and community groups work with government agencies um, under the banner of Truman National Security Project, which is a collection of about 1,300 national security practitioners uh, do a lot of work uh, for pro bono for free um, in terms of just helping national security leaders think about how to get relations or how to build relationships with faith-based and community groups. Um, most recently joined as an advisory board member for the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion and Emergency Management. So I know another thing that you focus on a lot, and I know a lot of leaders talk a lot about the pipeline, I think especially in the past year, we've taken a look at different industries. How can we build the pipeline more importantly? How do we support and retain that awesome talent in a way that's, you know, not discriminatory by age, race, sex, whatever. Um, so Institute for Diversity and Inclusion and Emergency Management's on that forefront. And then I, I most recently served as national co-chair for the HBCU COVID-19 Awareness and Resilience Day. We have some awesome young people across the country and HBCUs that from the beginning of COVID have been actively involved. And it's a story that I don't think gets enough credit in terms of the sheer size, scale, and scope of their contributions, not just as sources of information, but we're talking about doctors, public health professionals, and folks that are providing that trusted message in communities. Um, and so that effort was an effort done in conjunction with the HBCU uh, Emergency Management Workforce Consortium to really uplift and elevate the collective story of about 40 HBCUs. We know all HBCUs are involved, but about 40 or so raised their hand. They've committed to, to raising awareness and resilience. And I think that continues to be even more important, not just for the physical impacts of COVID, but we also focus a lot on the mental and emotional health impacts of COVID as well. So that is a snapshot of some of the things that I'm doing uh, nationally. I'm also involved in a few other local efforts as well, uh, particularly in thinking about helping, uh, serving as a board member for an organization that builds the capacity of smaller uh, nonprofits. So. He's a busy guy, folks. Yes. Uh, he's a busy guy. Uh, and, and you know, he and his wife just uh, bought a house a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I'm, I'm waiting for an invitation. So I'm sure it's, it's in the mail. I mean, you got you come anytime. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Marcus, do this. And I'm, I'm going to let you go on this. If you would, uh, what advice would you give folks that are considering mm -hmm. uh public service, looking at maybe working in government, uh, mm -hmm. because I know you're reading the data, you're reading the articles as well as I am, that's after this are actually, as a result of COVID, so many professionals are had taken a second look. Yeah. As, is, is this a career path I wanna stay on? Uh, do I wanna change careers? Is there something else I can do? I want to do more. What can I do? And then, of course, young people that are looking and, you know, a lot of times the young people always say, hey, I want to go and work in corporate America. But uh, public service is a great and noble uh, line of work. So if you would share any advice or any words of wisdom that you would share with people uh, thinking about public service and what you'd say to them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my, my advice is count your blessings, count your assets, make a plan and get to work. So when you count your blessings, 
I think a big part of that is the, the skills and things that you currently do. So I do have a lot of friends in the corporate sector. Maybe you're a finance person, an accountant person, or maybe you're just a serial entrepreneur. And, and the thing that you're in the business of building organizations, there is still a place for you in public service. In fact, I think taking a, a track of some of what LD's done, building partnerships with SBA and some of the small business development efforts can be your form of public service to help other people build successful businesses. When we talk about counting assets, I think you're right. COVID-19 has forced a lot of reflection and there's a lot of transferable skill sets. And I believe that the trend for what people are looking for in public service or companies that are taking on more of a public service role, because I think we've seen an increase in corporate social responsibility, is they're looking for people that have assets to be those integrators and connectors of different type of skills to solve problems that are at the scale of, we gotta get people food faster. We need to find different ways to meet the need of medically fragile, socially vulnerable communities. We have to make sure that people not only get counted as it relates to the census, right? But that they know how to continue to engage uh, in different ways as it relates to their, their, their civic duties. And while we see a lot of that activity still coming from the government side, increasingly we're seeing corporations and private sector entities and B Corps kind of take on some of that social responsibility. So when you think about public service, counting your assets is also thinking about how can I reframe the story? Making the plan, pretty straightforward. I follow, you can follow a lot of different management thought leaders. I would say, starting with, with your podcast and a lot of work that you do, having that plan for who you are as a leader, being able to check in with your peer group in terms of them giving you validation for what skill sets or what things are, are, are there for you. And then when we talk about building towards things, I think one of the, when people think about public service, I think, unfortunately, it's always associated with not making any money whatsoever. And that is not true. It doesn't have to be the case. So being smart about what it means to bring together different resources, um, be it outside resources, or maybe you're able to, you're in a position where you can do a little bit of fundraising up front, uh, but being very thoughtful and very flexible on the different sources of funding that can help you if you're not going to do it from the, the, the standpoint of government, or if you're going to take more of an entrepreneurial or social entrepreneurial route, doing it in mind of like, okay, there's some assets that I can bring to bear on an initiative, as opposed to trying to do it outside the system. I think one of the things that I appreciate about a lot of your work and your leadership, LD, is you were really good about, you knew the people who were trying to build stuff independently, and you knew the places that had been institutionally doing it for a long time, and that you kind of fit that role of, Let's help those people that are building it independently become better leaders and expand their capacity by connecting them to some of the institutions that are doing some of the longer term work. We need way more people like that, not just in your role, but also in government that kind of have that frame of mind. So if, if that's you and you listen to this podcast regularly, you find yourself as more of the entrepreneurial type and you want to build that capacity, there is a place in public service for you. Wow. That was a great public service announcement. <laughs> Marcus, thank you so, so much. Now, you know, I'm going to call you back because uh, you just mentioned something briefly about the HBCUs and those young people that are doing some things. I'd love to have you on with a group of them so that we can talk about that. I, I totally agree that many times the work that's being done in some areas of our community are not getting the kind of publicity they need to get. And people don't really know 
uh, what's going on. And so I'd like to, I'm going to tap you on that and bring those folks in and you back to help me moderate that because you're doing some fab fabulous things. Marcus Coleman, guys. Marcus Coleman. Remember that name, right? Remember that name. Don't be like I was. Who's that guy? You know, Marcus Coleman is, is one of my dear friends. And Marcus, I am so, so happy that you made the time to be on today and to share your leadership journey and also your passion for public service. And, and I know that your mom and your grandparents are very, very happy about the man you have become, and you're doing so much for so many. So thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you. you very much, LD. A pleasure being here. And yes, happy to come back anytime. And like I said, next time you're in DC, you are always welcome to the house. Um, and looking forward to seeing you again as it continues to get safer. Absolutely. Hey, guys, you heard that. You heard that. I'll take pictures when I get to the house. <laughs> I see the spread that they put out. Have a great Friday. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining Common Sense Leadership Podcast with your host, Dr. L.D. Bennett. Visit our website, commonsenseleadership.org, for more details. See you next week.